Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode Number 12. In Episode 12, we broke down Dr. Catherine Paneri's trial testimony. And I think we got a pretty good insight into the differences between reading these reports and the raw facts and how that information translates to trial. And it was a pretty good battle of wits when it came to Paneri's testimony. Barnett did a good job of crafting her narrative, using the facts included in the report, and Max Seacrest tried to shift that narrative back the other way. I think that they both scored some points, but in my opinion, at the end of the day, the prosecution definitely won that battle, mostly due to the fact that I think that they probably convinced the jury that there was only one knife used in the attack, even though that's not necessarily what the evidence indicates, and they also convinced the jury that the bindings on Jim's ankles were applied after death, and that one was huge. I disagree with that wholeheartedly, even more so now that I've researched it and studied it more since we recorded that episode, but I'm sure we're going to get into all that. We do not have Liz Rose with us today. It's just going to be me and Mike, and I think we should go ahead and get started. Sounds like a plan, Bob. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, first, we haven't had one of these for a while, so let's play a voicemail. Hi, this is Marissa. I'm calling from Seattle. Um, I just want to say I love your podcast. I love what you're doing. I had some thinking after listening to the autopsy report and hearing about the bruising around um, Mr. Melgar's ankles from the um, bindings and things like that and thinking about Mrs. Melgar's, what I believe has been reported as lack of bruising from her bindings. And I was wondering if because she didn't struggle and because of her diagnoses, if she had poor circulation, if she would have bruised, Um, especially if she was knocked out and was not struggling, would bindings 
leave markings just from being there if um, a person wasn't struggling against them. And I was wondering if you could comment. I know it might be a little bit early. We haven't really discussed uh, Mrs. Melgar's injuries and, and what um, she experienced. But if you could comment on that, I would appreciate it. Thank you again. Bye. Okay, so really there's two points there that I want to address. I'll start with her second, which are Sandy's bruises or lack of bruises on her arms. So Sandy did have bruising on her arm. And I think a lot of the disconnect here is when we're talking about ligature marks, a lot of times we're thinking about what I would call classic ligature marks, which means someone is bound very tightly and they're fighting against bindings and they, you know, they're, they're struggling to get loose. Or an example would be, Stevie, Michael, and Christopher in the West Memphis 3 case. So in that case, there were shoelaces that were tied around each wrist and ankle individually and very tight. And just because of the way that your body, you know, your your arms and ankles, your wrists and ankles don't want to be together like that, they're constantly pulling away from each other, you're going to have a very clear line. In this case, we have a couple things going on with the bindings for both Jim and Sandy, but we'll talk about Sandy first. So Sandy wasn't bound at the wrists. She was wrapped several times around her forearms. She was also bound with a very broad, kind of stretchy, soft material. So you're not going to expect very, very clear ligature marks, like if she was tied up with a a string or a rope. That being said, Sandy did have very, very clear ligature marks. They were missed by the initial investigators. Uh, they were noticed by, I think, Carzal and Doucet because it was after she went back to the scene after her interviews in the morning where they finally took pictures of her arms where you can see bruising on her forearms and their their lines that are kind of at angles along the forearms that matches up perfectly with the way Herman said that she was bound when they found her. The EMT, uh, I think her name was Stephanie Roberts, didn't look at her forearms. If, if if you listen to what she said, where she's reported in, in her reports and testimony and what the police have reported, she told them is she said she didn't see any binding marks or ligature marks on Sandy's wrist, but there wouldn't have been any on her wrist. As far as the lupus goes, she actually, my understanding is that Sandy bruises pretty easily, which is probably why she had those marks on her forearms at all, uh, because a lot of people may not have been because she wasn't fighting. She was unconscious, according to her. It was a soft and broad material, and it was up on the meaty part of her arm and the forearms, not against bone. So I think that the fact that she bruises a little more easily is probably the reason why you did see bruises. But there there were, in fact, ligature marks on her. Now, from there, I want to get back to what I think is very, very relevant. I mentioned it in the introduction coming into this episode, is Jim's bindings. This, the more and more I've looked into this, is the most irritating and frustrating thing about the testimony that we covered this week by Dr. Paneri. I'll say this. It was, it was a very big error on, in my opinion. Um, I don't know if facts were intentionally twisted or if it was in fact an error, but if you haven't done so yet, go onto our website and look at the photos I posted of Jim's ankles. And you'll see, first of all, she says there's no signs of ligature or hemorrhaging whatsoever. That is false. There is clearly, I marked and and, uh, noted on the photo that I posted, the indentation. And the indentation could be, okay, so the cord was loose and there was a a coat thrown over him by Sandy to try to cover his genitals. There could have been a slight shifting of the cord. uh, Because if you look, the cord that's above the indentation of his leg 
matches up with it. It's just not directly over it. So that cord could have been down a half inch or so and been right where that indentation mark is. Still, though, it was an absolute fallacy when Paneri said that that indentation is from his leg being on top of the cord. Because that's not true. The indentation is on his top leg. There's nothing on top of it but the cord, which is loose. So that was just straight up false. But aside from that, there is a very clear, and I've posted it on the fan page as well and got a lot of opinions on it. I haven't seen anybody say that they can't very clearly see the purple, what we would consider a classic ligature mark on Jim's ankles, where it looks like he fought against that binding and it bruised him. I mean, there's just no question about it that, that it's, it's very easy to see. Some listeners looked even closer and adjusted kind of the hue and saturation on the picture to get a little more contrast and they could see other ligature marks. But there's even more to it than that. So remember, these bindings weren't super tight. Why weren't they super tight? Colleen Barnett's theory was that because Sandy put them on after he was dead. Well, there's blood spatter on them and blood spatter on the, the areas around them that matches that doesn't doesn't add up at all uh, that they were put on after death. But I think the looseness could be just because you're trying to tie a knot in a phone cord. They may have been tight at the beginning. And when Jim started fighting against them, it could cause the knot to tighten and the bindings themselves to loosen as he's fighting against them. So that could be why they're more loose than you would expect. But setting all that aside and and think about ligature marks and what we're looking for. And again, we're, we're talking about classic ligature marks. But look at the dynamics of this crime scene. Clearly, Jim was very mobile. And he was fighting back. Everyone agrees with that. The medical examiner, even the prosecutor, everyone says he was fighting for his life. And the wound patterns, in my opinion, indicate that he was fighting with his legs, that, that he had his knees up and was trying to fight and kick and push away the attacker with his knees and legs. So there's a lot of movement on these these bindings. And going back to the fact that they're loose, what you see on Jim is on his shin bone. There's a bunch of bruising there. They were noted in the autopsy report. We can see them on the photos. You can see some of them in the photo that I posted. That under that binding, there are lots of bruises that go up his shin. And so we're looking, did he kick somebody? You know, how could that happen? Well, I think that that's just an indication that that binding, that phone cord, was dragging up and down his shin as he was fighting. And so what would look like a bunch of bruises in kind of a, a straight line over maybe a four-inch area on his shins really could just be that binding moving up and down as he's fighting and just bruising him along the way. We're not, there wouldn't be just straight-up, deep-cutting ligature marks like if you just tied something very tightly directly around his wrists or his ankle and then fought, he fought against it and it would leave a bruise right there. It was loose and he was moving, which would cause that kind of bruising along the shin. So... I think that's just another indicator that although there's only the one that I see very clearly, there's a couple more other people have pointed out kind of straight ligature type marks that bruising along his shin is another huge indicator that he was definitely alive when those and, and fighting when those bindings were applied and then add to that the blood spatter and everything else. And I just think that was a huge miss by the ME. And I think it was devastating. I think that has to be one of the things that was the most devastating to Sandy's case because it's how how hard is it to reconcile why a burglar who ends up killing someone after they're dead would come in and loosely tie up somebody's ankles that clearly can be framed to look to the jury as a narrative that the scene was staged and that's exactly what happened 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. To, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, and our first question comes from Kathy. It's said that the lights in the Melgar's home were not on the night of the murder. So if the killer were an intruder, could they have had a heavy flashlight, which could have been able to make the wounds to Jim's head and or face? What do you think? I don't think so. I don't, I don't see any based on it. Again, I'm not a medical examiner or a doctor, um, but I don't see any of those wounds that are indicative of a flashlight. You know, a good example of that is the case of John Bonnet Ramsey and Dr. Warner Spitz, who did a later autopsy on that case. and. He believes there was a flashlight used to strike Jean Bonnet in the head, and you could see the skull fractures. And he went into a great depth in um, in Jim Clemente's production, the case of Jean Bonnet Ramsey on TV, and we got to see Warner Spitz explaining and demonstrating what that looks like. And those wound patterns, you could almost fit the flashlight into the fractures on the skull, whereas Jim had just linear fractures on his skull. I don't think that it's anything like a flashlight or a big rounded object like that. It doesn't look like that to me. Lauren says, can we clarify where on Jim's head the skull fracture is in relation to the cluster of wounds on his head? Yeah, those skull fractures are directly underneath those bruises. So now I'm not saying it was a fist, but just just to clarify for locations here, what this looks like to me, and it could be something else, is someone with a closed fist punched Jim in the back right of his head, right behind his right ear. That entire area where the fist hit is bruised with a cluster of bruising inside of that bruise. And then directly under that bruise is the skull fracture. Mrs. T on Twitter says, is there a chance the bruising behind Jim's ears are, quote, battle sign? These appear as a result of head trauma and don't necessarily mean he was hit in those exact spots. So that's a possibility. What battle sign is, is when it's kind of that coop counter coop that was discussed during the trial testimony, if I understand it correctly, which would mean, you know, someone was hit on the head. Maybe they were hit on the front of their head and the brain moving and slamming into the skull in the back could cause this fracture on the back and cause some of the bleeding and bruising. On Twitter, somebody uh, posted a photo or maybe it was on Facebook of how this happened to them where they were actually hit, I think, on the back of the head, but they had two black eyes on the front of their face from the hit on the back of their head. That can happen, and Dr. Paneri discussed it not from the front to the back, but the other way around. She said it's possible that the orbital bones, the eye sockets that were fractured on the front of his skull, that those could have came from the blow to the back of the head. But as she said, there's also a lot of indicators of actual blunt force trauma to the front of the head because some of the bruising on the front of the head also is tied in with abrasions and and lacerations. So that cannot be caused by a hit to the back of the head. And the type of bruising that he had on the back of his head 
I don't think could have come from a blow from the front. You know, the, the fracture could, I guess, but, um, in Dr. Paneri's opinion, and I tend to agree with her, that blow to the back of the head is what caused that bruising and that particular skull fracture. The front's upper debate, but again, there are clear signs of force applied to the front of his face as well. Kimberly says, I wonder if it's possible that the forked appearance on some of the sharp force injuries with attendant blunt force characteristics was from a ring. Could these also be from punches and could maybe be a place to look for DNA if an alternate suspect still has the item? I don't think so. I think that really I'm very comfortable with my theory that it was from the molding in the closet. And again, if you haven't been on our website to look at the documents, I put a photo up there. It's annotated. I got a couple of blow-ups within that photo so you can see what I'm talking about. The The lacerations are too long and too uniform, I think, to have come from a, a ring. So the two on the back of the head, one on the top of the head, all are, I don't remember the exact length, but I want to say they're like an inch and a half, two inches long with the forks all at the same end. And the forks all line up with if his head had hit that molding. So there would have been his head would have moved in different directions. But anyway, you turn his head to make the angle of those cuts, the forks in the same place in all of them. And, you know, there's again, there's that beveled molding there. So the bottom of the molding looks like a trapezoid, but then there's a 45 degree angle coming off of it. I mean, it literally, if you trace out the edges, the sharp edges of that molding right in the place where his head would hit. And there's there's blood with hair marks in it right there on that piece of molding. It makes the exact shape of the cuts that are on his head, where the bevel makes that Y shape or fork shape. So, um, but no, I don't. I don't see any way it could have been made with a ring. I think somebody else asked, could it have been brass knuckles? Um, I don't think so. Brass knuckles. I think so, I don't remember if it was that injury or the big bruise on the back where they were asking about the brass knuckles. But um, in either case, no, I don't think so. You, the brass knuckles would cause a lot more skull damage, and much like the flashlight that Kathy had asked about. There, it would almost leave an impression in the skull that you could match up to something like that, where these were just linear fractures. And there was no skull fractures with the uh, the wounds on the head, the, the fork-shaped wounds. Meredith has three questions. First, was an expert ever hired to examine the tub knife to conclusively prove that there are no defects present? No, that was one of the things that Dr. Paneri mentioned was that it was never examined, and that, that hurt the defense case a lot because, you know, in her report, she indicated there were several wounds that were just very clean, straight cuts. There was there was the one particularly that she said looked like it had serrated characteristics. And then there was the ones that all had that little perpendicular defect coming out. And I'm having a hard time describing that, I think, in, in audio, but I'm going to try again. Uh, for those of you on video, you'll see a little better. So, if you think of the knife, if you're, if you're, if the knife is pointed at your face and you're looking at it and there's a little chip out of the blade of the knife, but it, the chip didn't break off. Rather, it's bent to the side. Um, so like a 90 degree angle off the knife. A good way to demonstrate this is to, if you take a piece of paper and imagine that piece of paper is the knife blade. And if you take the piece of paper and you, and you make two little tears, maybe an inch apart right next to each other. And then take that little flap that you created and fold it out perpendicular. That's what these wounds look like. So if that if that piece of paper were a knife blade and it got stabbed into you, you'd have the long slit for the long edge of the paper. But then you'd have this little piece from that little flap you folded out that made a little perpendicular mark as well. And that's what these these wounds look like. 
So Paneri talked about how there's the serrated characteristic. There was that little, as I said on the show, it was kind of a little sleight of hand. I don't even know if it was intentional because she didn't really say this, but that's what the impression was that she had the anthropology expert look at the cuts to the cartilage and determine those weren't serrated. Those were from a knife with a defect, as I just described to you. But then, remember, she had also said during direct that that knife that was in the tub could have been capable of making all the wounds that she sees. And then when she was asked, did anybody ever examine that knife to see if it could make those wounds? The answer was no. Personally, that's terrible, in my opinion. It's horrible. We, I'll just say this. The fact if it wasn't examined is ridiculous. It was easy enough to do. You had a very clean, clear example and multiple wounds to tell exactly what the blade looked like that punctured that cartilage. And they had the knife and they didn't examine it to find out. I can tell you in my non-expert opinion, that knife didn't make those wounds, but some of those in the cartilage. And you can see for yourself, go on our website, look at the photos of the knife. There's one of them that has a little kind of bend to it in the paper underneath it and the shadow looks curved. But ignore that. Zoom in on the actual blade, the very edge blade of that knife, and look slowly all the way across it. And you'll see on both sides, there is not a single defect on that blade. There's nothing on that blade that could cause those little perpendicular, consistent little perpendicular uh, incise wounds off of a stab. There's nothing there that matches that. But they never had it examined, and that was able to breeze right past the jury. Next, she wants to know, was there any blood or DNA found on the tub knife? There was blood found on the tub knife, um, and we'll get into what was found on it in the forensics episode. Last, she says, since we know the tub knife isn't serrated, if an expert provides testimony that the tub knife has no defects, yet appears to have been used in the crime, haven't we just proven definitively that two weapons were used? Yeah, in my opinion, the facts support that. Uh, th there has to be. Or the tub knife wasn't used at all, even though there was blood found on the tub knife it's a mess i just i don't know how it unless i'm just not understanding something which is entirely possible it just doesn't add up there's i don't i don't see any way that the knife in the tub could have made some of those wounds and then we still have that incised wound five that she described as having serrated characteristics and the anthropology people didn't look at that so that's maybe even a third weapon but no, it doesn't definitively prove anything because well all we have is, is what the trial testimony was and as i kind of said in the show she kind of punted a lot uh, which is typical of some experts. They're not going to overstate their opinion. But what my frustration with Paneri was is she wasn't consistent with that. So when, when Barnett would ask her a question like, could this knife have made some of these wounds? And she replies, this knife could have made all the wounds I see. That's a pretty definitive statement that is not supported by fact. It's not supported by what she revealed in cross-examination. Uh, and then the other one was the cord bindings. I mean, she, she could have said or should have said, if this was really her opinion, that she doesn't see any classic ligature marks. She doesn't see any hemorrhaging around there. So she can't, t you know, she can't make an opinion one way or the other, like she did with, with Max Seacrest when he was questioning her. But rather, she says, it is, it's my opinion. These were applied after, uh, she didn't say after he was dead. She said after the stabbings occurred because he was fighting during the stabbing and she doesn't see any, any indication that he was fighting while the bindings were attached to her. First of all, in that one, as I've said many times today, I think that is an incorrect assessment, first of all. Secondly, it was pretty definitive, and Max Seacrest never got any kind of definitive answer like that from her at all. 
Lori wants to know, do we have access to Sandy's attorney who might be able to answer some trial-related questions? And also, maybe what they learned from the jury post-trial, if they even spoke to them. Yeah, we do have access to, or I have access to, Mac and Allison Seacrest. We've spoken a few times. It sounds like Mac is going to do an interview, or he wants to do an interview and has agreed that he will be doing one coming up. But right now, they are in the middle of, now that the trial transcripts are are up and available, then now that now the clock has been reset and is ticking on the appeals brief. And last I heard, that appeals document was well over 150 pages long. And that is where all of his attention is going right now. So I expect to have Mac on the show uh, once the appeals brief is filed and things slow down a little bit. Uh, but that could be a little while. Jennifer has two questions. First, is there a possibility that the burglary of the home happened between the time Jim was hit on the head and what seems like the hour before he was stabbed and killed? I don't think it was an hour. I mean, it could have been. And and Paneri said that in her own words, that there could have been an hour gap between when the head injuries occurred and when one of the, some of the stab wounds occurred. But I, I think it was probably that's just just when people get maybe knocked unconscious. It's not like in the movies, you know, it's usually seconds, a minute, you know, before they'll kind of come to, they might be a little disoriented. We got a long way to go, I think, to be able to quite figure that out. But this was, I think Don McElhaney, who's always really good at analyzing some of these things on the fan page, posed the theory that he was knocked out and was face down when the cords were put onto his ankle. And there's a lot of evidence to support that. So remember the scuffed knee, right? So you have the, the scuffed knee, you have no stab marks on jim's back okay you have all this all the stab wounds are to the front of him but he's got a lot of blunt force to his back he's got big a huge bruise on his left shoulder blade the ones on the back of his head the back of his triceps uh even his buttocks so it seems there was an attack from the back at some point and then couple that with uh the rug burn on his knee i think that very likely and this is just my opinion and hypothesis, but I think that the same thing happened to Jim that I think happened to Sandy, which was the intention was to put them in the closet and bind them. I think that in Sandy's case, she was already in the closet and they came up behind her, hit her on the head, that knocked her out. Maybe in her case, put her into a seizure while she was down. They tied her up. I think in Jim's case, the same was true. I think they were forcing him into the closet. They hit him over the back of the head, which knocked him down, scuffs his knee, and, and push him down into the ground a little bit. Maybe he goes unconscious or complies. While he's down, they bind his ankles. One of the things that Don noticed, aside from uh, me adding to that, the, the scuff to the knee, is the, the knot on the phone cord bindings is on the back, on the back of his ankles. And it's again, it's like a quadruple knot. And I just don't see somebody wrapping that phone cord around his ankle several times and then tying the knot underneath his feet. That that doesn't add up. I think that they would tie the knot in whatever side was up at the time. Because imagine tying that knot. You, you, you know, twist it over, tie it once, pull it tight, tie it again, tie it again, tie it again. Doing that under his feet doesn't make sense. And there was plenty of cord there for them to make another wrap if they wanted to bring it back around to the front. And then also we have the plastic dry cleaning wrapper that was wrapped between his ankles but it looks like it's kind of tucked under the bindings which could have been from the struggle but but that is more consistent with the fact that he was hit from behind knocked down he's in there was there was a fight and a struggle he's knocked unconscious or he complies 
and that's when the the dry cleaning wrapper got got wrapped around his legs. He's face down. He gets tied up, ankles up, and then we take the red lasso, the rope that's around him that never got done. They were maybe moving up to start tying uh, his arms like they did Sandy. And as they went up there, he jumps up and starts to fight back, turns around, and they start facing him. And then the stabbing happens. And, of course, at some point during that struggle, I think it's very obvious he was going for his gun. But I don't remember what that original question was. But I'm sure that's more of an answer than anybody was was bargaining for. But, oh, I think it was the, the, could the burglary have happened in the hour between the two. So I guess jumping back to that, I think that there were multiple. Again, this is a hypothesis. It's just my opinion based on what I see now. This is not, there's nothing not supported by fact in any way. But I think that we're looking at at least four people. Um, and that's a minimum. I think that there would be people controlling Sandy and Jim simultaneously. And I think there were other people that were going through the house and starting to burglarize the house. So I think it was kind of all happening at once when things broke bad with Jim. They aborted the plan and got the hell out of there. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Next, she says, do you think it's possible that the intruder left believing Jim was alive, not knowing that they had killed him? I don't think so. Um, he may have been alive still at that point. But, I mean, you don't stab somebody multiple times in their chest and abdomen and you know, with all the blood that was there. I don't see any way somebody could think, well, he'll probably be okay after that. There's just no way. And just for clarification's sake, John wanted to know if the knife from the bathtub did, in fact, belong to the Melgars. We don't know. There was another Califon knife found in the kitchen. Uh, it was a different type of knife, but that was it. That was the only one that was the same brand, same style. There wasn't a set that they all belonged to. Sandy has said she doesn't think that was her knife. Liz has said that the one that was in the drawer was one that um, she got for a gift registry that doesn't match anything else. So it's just it's hard to say. Serena says, can Bob please address whether or not everyone's financials were examined so that we can finally put the hitman theories to rest? Yeah, so as I said last week, all of Sandy and Jim's financials were examined. There was nothing there, no unusual payments, nothing like that. And the bigger thing was her electronic communications, and and I'll explain why. Because those of you just listening to the show, not engaging in the fan page or the social media, probably don't know this is going on, but there have been a lot of questions about could Liz has, have ordered a hit from Europe where she was at at the time. And so that's I assume that's kind of where this is spinning off of those conversations. The answer is no. So we've already verified we know Liz was there. We have her passports. We have her plane tickets, her itineraries, all that. We know for a fact she was in Europe when this happened. I had a conversation with somebody in the fan page about this and they uh, regarding her financials and said, you know, if we just had this, we could prove that that didn't happen. And what I said is it, you can't prove this negative. If somebody's just spinning theories based on zero evidence, there's no basis in reality. There's nothing, zero, nothing at all supporting it. But it's just a theory of something that could happen. You can't, you can't disprove that. I can't anymore disprove that Liz Rose ordered a hit on her father than I can disprove that aliens came down and attacked Jim. 
that's a fact. There's actually more evidence that an alien did it because at least it explains how they got in with the doors locked. There's a million reasons why it wasn't a hit. Let's go through. I think I put out like five points there. Uh, number one, so we know Sandy and Jim's financials were checked. Nothing there. But they also went through all of Sandy's electronic communications. That's text. That's emails. That's instant messages. She was using the the WhatsApp, I think it's called, to communicate with some people. Her phone records. They went through, and, and Jim's, they went through her Google search history, her computers, everything. Zero evidence that there is anything that she was even considering having a problem with her husband or putting on a hit on her husband or anything like that. So then people say, well, maybe it was Liz because Liz didn't get along with her dad. And that's true. Liz and her dad had a very strained relationship for years until just the few months right before he was killed. That's when they really, when she, when she found out she was pregnant, that's when they really started to bond their relationship back together. Uh, and all of those email exchanges between her and her father and everyone, those are all in evidence. So there's no, there's no question that that relationship was good at the time, that, that Sandy and Jim's relationship were good at the time based on all those electronic communications. Also, what we have is electronic communications between Liz and Sandy. Cause some of the theories out there were maybe Liz ordered a hit to kill her dad because her mom wanted her to and she was trying to help her mom, but there's nothing going from her mom to Liz indicating that there's any problems like that or that she would like anything like that to happen. So let's look at, were Liz's financials pulled by the police? I doubt. I don't think that they ever were. I know that she was investigated. They did the same as I did, verified her locations, her passport, and all that stuff. That was done. But what we know about Liz and her husband, Anthony, at the time, they were in Europe. They were not making very much money at all. Uh, I think that, you know, Anthony was making somewhere around like a thousand pounds a month. However, that translates back to American money. But basically what I know is they were barely paying the bills. Liz was making her money working for the medical billing company with her parents. They were getting by, but they didn't have any abundance of money. Meaning, uh, if you think Liz was involved, well, then Anthony must have been too, because they certainly would have noticed any large sum of money that went to pay off a hitman somewhere. Now, that being said, then that kind of turns into, okay, well, Liz didn't have a lot of money. Maybe she was doing it for the insurance money. First of all, it wasn't a very big insurance policy. Second of all, it didn't go to Liz. It went to Sandy. So that would be no help for Liz anyway. Third of all, at that time, they were moving back to, they were in the process of moving back to the United States because Anthony got a job where he was actually making good money when they came back and was going into his post-grad work. And oh, by the way, Anthony was studying to be and now is an actual rocket scientist and makes very good money. And they knew that he was going to make very good money once he finished these processes of going through the rest of his education. So let's just look at it from a criminal behavior standpoint. So where is Liz at in her life? She's in Europe. She finds out she's pregnant and then has a miscarriage shortly before this. So she's an emotional wreck over that. As anyone who's ever experienced that knows, that's a lot of emotional turmoil. They're preparing for a move from one country to another one, which is stressful. At the same time, they're excited about the fact that Anthony has this new job and they're, they're moving to a point where they're actually going to make some more money and not be buying grocery with change anymore. So things are going very good and very bad at the same time. Point being, there's a lot of emotions going there that, that this person, Liz, our potential 
person who ordered a hit on her father is going through, think about where in that mindset you think, you know what I'm going to do this week, though, is kill my dad. I'm going to have somebody go kill my dad in the middle of all this, even though I don't have money to pay a hitman. And then suggested maybe she made a deal with some rough crowd people she used to hang out with. Okay, where does that come in, though, into her mind that I want to kill my dad right now? The electronic communications indicate relationship was great with her dad at that point, better than it had been in years. So then she decides right now in the middle of all this turmoil to do that. And she does it while her mom and dad are both home when she knew like two days later her mom was going to be leaving to go out of town with her family for the week and her dad would have been home alone. So you see none of this is starting to add up. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's just an idea somebody had, well, what if? And I can't prove that wouldn't happen, but there was no motive for her to do that. We know there was no motive coming from Sandy for her to do that based on their communications. We know that Sandy didn't do anything on any sort of electronic device whatsoever that indicates that she wanted to do that. Liz couldn't afford to do that. Liz was in a space in her life when everything was very, there was a lot of turmoil going, but there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And then the timing of the fact that Jim and Sandy were there when a couple days later, Sandy would be gone. Uh, and if you really wanted to do that, you can do it then. And that's not even to think about the fact that there's nothing on this crime scene that indicates this was a professional hit. And and I'll step back from that to say, because people said it doesn't have to be a professional hit, man. There's nothing on this crime scene that indicates this was an experienced killer, period. This crime scene reads to me very criminally sophisticated burglars. They were very good at burglarizing houses, but this was not someone who is experienced or criminally sophisticated when it comes to murder. This murder was not planned, in my opinion, was not planned at all. And the person that was in the struggle with him was not able to control Jim. He was fighting back and he was getting the better of them in some ways. They were never able to sink in a solid blow all the way into him. It was just an absolute mess. So forget for a minute the air quote, professional hitman. But let's just put into that position someone whose only purpose is to kill Jim Melgar. There's a million other ways to do it, and they're and very easily walk into the house and shoot him. I mean, you, you can't say they're trying to stay whatever. There was a brutal fight and stabbing. Who's taking the risk to start wrestling around with a guy with a knife like that? And And, and why tie him up? The bindings were clearly put on him while he was alive and struggling, why tie him up? This was not someone going into that house to kill Jim Melgar, in my opinion, whatsoever. So all of those things add up to none of that makes any sense whatsoever. And again, I can't prove that Liz Melgar didn't order a hit on her father. I also can't prove that aliens didn't come down in spaceships and go into the house and kill Jim Melgar. All right, Janelle has three questions. First, during Dr. Paneri's testimony, when the defense was up, it was stated that an anthropologist gave an opinion on the knife wounds. Is it normal for one expert to testify about what was said by a different expert? No. Um, and actually, I didn't catch that until you just read that. But that is strange that it was allowed. Jeez, I don't know. I mean, no, that's hearsay. And typically, and of course, you know, lawyer folks try, go ahead and chime in on social media if I'm wrong about this. But yeah, typically, you can't testify about what's anything someone else said you know you can't say the anthropologist told us this they'd have to have the anthropology expert come in and testify to it i would think you know and maybe maybe the other side was just like it doesn't matter because they can just it, it's in the report everybody can see it in the report but 
Yeah, that's interesting. Next, she says, is there a written anthropologist report entered into the court record? Yeah, like I said, it was it was not a straight up report. It was just included in the medical examiner's autopsy report. There was a section on it that was the anthropology consultation. But I know because I was looking because I wanted to see the actual anthropology report and I wanted to hear the anthropologist testified. I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but I had it written in my notes when I was going through the testimony, looking through all the trial transcripts to see if that person testified, and they never did. Okay, this next one's from Fifi. She says, I'm trying to figure out whether the shower stool came into play. Since there's transfer blood on it, and it was said to be kept under the spot where Jamie ended up, could the shower chair have been used as either a weapon or a shield by Jim or his attacker? Yeah, it could have been. I mean, it's it's hard to say, and I just say I, you can't rule out that possibility. Personally, I think that it was just moved out of the way because they were going to lock Jim in the closet. I think as you know, they they knocked him out, they put him down in there. Um, maybe they start tying his ankles up, and then they're going up to tie his arms or shoulders. However, they were going to do the upper bindings, and they just grabbed the chair and or the stool and got it out of the way because it's a small closet to make room for him. I think that. All the blood that happened out on the chair and the shower stool uh, at this point in the game indicates to me the way it looks to me is that all of that blood came after the fact that that was that was blood from the killer coming out of that closet after attacking and stabbing Jim covered in blood themselves. And that transfer blood is Jim's blood, but I think it came off the attackers. Okay, that's going to do it for questions this week. Now, Bob, do you want to tell the listeners what's going on with a new project we have at NBI Studios? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, we've got, we've got a lot going on. As most of you know, NBI Studios is not just the Truth and Justice podcast. We also have the amazing Hustlin' and Heels podcast, which just launched their second season. Uh, I'd love for you guys to go check that out. We have the Root Note podcast with Shane Yoder with PutThemInASong.com. Uh, they just started their season three. The Root Note's awesome. And then I personally was just on our newest project, uh, which is a podcast called Made Us, which is hosted by Zach Weaver. And on Made Us, Zach interviews people and has them tell the stories that made them, so to speak, uh, that, that shaped their lives. And it's a really cool project, and Zach does an awesome job. And in the episode that just released yesterday, yours truly is on that episode. And I think we're episode 10 of Made Us. So please go check out the Made Us podcast with Zach Weaver. And Zach is spelled with a Q. Episode 10 dropped yesterday. Uh, that's an interview with me. And Zach wanted me to tell the story of how did I go from being a firefighter to a podcaster? And a lot of you might know kind of the Reader's Digest version, but, you know, I spend about an hour in the studio with Zach telling that story. It gets gets pretty emotional and, and intense, but um, that's the full story of how I ended up here right now when just a few years ago I was I was riding a fire engine for a living. Also, at the end of our credits today if you keep listening zach put together a little trailer for that episode if you want to get kind of a feel for what you're going to get with the made us podcast and other than that like i said stay tuned for the end of the credits to hear the trailer and i think that's all we got in it mike that's it awesome see you guys next week Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. 
Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Then I would say, "What's a podcast?" And he said, "I don't know, but we need to make one." None of us knew what a podcast was. I don't know what it is, but let's do it. Right? We need a podcast. And he said, "We need an app." He, was, he says, Just "Always say we need an app." Too. An app. I'm like, what does that mean? I don't know. We need an app. Everybody has an app nowadays. And before I went to the board meeting, I was talking to Becky, and I broke down. I was crying. Like, like, and that's also out of character for me. I cry when I'm happy all the time. Yeah. I'm a big fat crier <laughs> when i'm happy i don't cry when i'm sad i'm a baby i cry all the time you can ask my <laughs> wife i cry all the time i can't help it we're like like that i'm a sap and she's like hugging me like like consoling me like she would a child i mean she was she's she's a rock she's she was there for me and i'm just just sobbing and i'm just like i, I can't do it i can't Keep doing this. I hate it. I am your host, Zach Weaver, and this is Made Us.